Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We are joined by Derek Warwick, rated by Autosport among the best never to win a Grand Prix. guest on this edition of the Autosport Podcast is one of the most influential characters in British motorsport, a veteran of 146 Formula One starts, sports car world champion, former BRDC president, also still a regular in F1 today as a driver steward. Uh, I'm your host, Ed Stewart. My guest is Derek Warwick. Now, this is a momentous Autosport Podcast because it's the first time I've allowed somebody from Jersey and the Channel Islands on, and that's significant because I'm originally from Guernsey, and there's quite a big rivalry there. So I've, I've only let you on, Derek, because you, are, you aren't bo- you weren't born in Jersey, even though you've lived there for quite some time. Yeah, but I'm really Jersey now, you know, and you know the hatred that we've got between Jersey and Guernsey. Um, and Ad Kevin told me that you were born in Guernsey. I probably wouldn't have done this podcast. Yeah, well, I think, that's, I think that's very, very fair. But the good thing is, now you're on it, I've got the microphone, I can give you a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> well, also joining me is Kevin Turner, Autosport magazine editor. And uh, were, you a, were you a Derek Warwick fan in your in your youth? Um, probably more in the in sports cars, actually, because um, I kind of came to F1 more towards the late 80s, by which time Derek was saddled with fairly poor equipment, m- more so. Um, but I thought I was you were going to say in decline. 
No, 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 no. I well, thought he was going to say in decline. No, no, no. Well. Um, and one of the first big meetings I went to was the 91 Silverstone 1000 Ks with the XJR 14s, which is still one of my favourite racing cars. And obviously Derek was part of that that team. So that's probably more my more my sort of childhood memory of him. Yes. Well, I, well, I, think, I think also that um, I, when I look back at my career between Formula 1 and sports cars, it kind of typified my career in some ways because every time I drove a Grand Prix car it was shite and every time I drove a uh, sports car um, it was one of the best on the grid so it was easy to win in sports cars not because the competition wasn't very good um, just because I was in the best car and and I've always said winning is easy you know finishing seventh when the last point is six um, about 50 times in your career hurts it really does hurt <laughs> no well in fact in F1, one of the things we ran in autosport a few years ago was the best drivers never to win a Grand Prix of those who had a Grand Prix career of more than a, a few races. So, obviously, there's all manner of drivers you can make cases for. But I think we placed you seventh in that as uh, oh, the best. That's disappointing. Best Why seventh? Who was first? Uh, first, actually, we put Jean Berry first from Chris Amon. Oh, okay. I, I can't complain. Proper drivers. Controversial. Although, I did, as I was talking to Kev about this earlier, I did say that if you were to hypothetically be signing from these drivers, I think you'd be a little bit higher up the list. Because okay. there were some, should we say, mercurial drivers. Okay. Good bit of reversing. Well done. Exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> we have to, uh, have to try and do. But, but it, it is interesting. I mean, how do you, how do you react to that? Because you were plenty good enough to win a Grand Prix, quite a few Grand Prix. I thought you had opportunities that were, lost through no fault of through no fault of your own so i mean is it frustrating when you look back that you didn't at least just get one on the board just to sort of show you show you could uh, do it i don't wake up and then in the middle of the night screaming because i didn't win a grand prix no, you do because you're in jersey <laughs> um but it does hurt i have to say it really hurts sometimes um just because you know when you're talking to your grandchildren um you know who don't understand yeah you know, did you win a grand prix granddad uh, no, no, but I, I nearly did. Well, you know, that doesn't really do it. So, um, I just think that, um, I look at a lot of great drivers' careers and they have a habit of making the right move. Um, and on the reverse of that, I made a habit of making the wrong move. You know, um, I signed for uh, Renault in 84, great move, great car, um, re-signed instead of going to Williams in 85. Uh, we lost all our top guys. 85 car was, was, was rubbish. Um, and I ended up sort of kickstarting my career again. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those easy decisions you make in life that, that actually turns the other way. Do I regret that decision? Absolutely not. You know, I had a great career. I loved my racing, you know, and I loved my time at Arrows and, um, I loved my time at Brabham. You know, it, it, it was, they were all character building, but by that time I, thought my character was probably strong enough and I deserved a break. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's worth remembering, I think probably in 84, um, Derek was probably high, better rated than large amounts at the time. Um, the Lotus and the Renault actually were not dissimilar in terms of level of performance. Um, and obviously it was the Williams drive you could have had is the one that Nige got and then that's what finally kicked off his his win. So it just shows how sometimes it's just yeah. one thing that, you know, that, that can affect... What happens for years? It's if onlys, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and, and you take nothing away from Nigel. He was one of our great, great British drivers. And, you know, some of his, his wins were just iconic. You know, they, they were brilliant. So whether I would have stepped up to that kind of level, we would just never know, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, like I say, you know, um, I've made, you know, a, a good living out of, out of motor racing. Um, I was always paid well. I was respected well. Um, and I, I really honestly 
loved every moment of it. I was one of those extraordinary drivers, I think, that I love training. Um, I love talking to marshals, to journalists, um, to, to team members, to sponsors. Um, I love driving cars. I love testing cars. I just loved every part of being a racing driver. You know, there wasn't a part. I loved the traveling. I just loved every bit about being a racing driver. The interesting thing is, talking about that, that decision not to go to Williams, it's very easy. Hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? And Renault was a factory team, 83. They fought for the world championship in 84. Williams was on the up, but it was a still a fairly gentle curve up with Honda at that time. And Renault was, was a team that just had one slightly iffy year. And even in 84, the car was was reasonable at times. So it, it's it's very easy to say, well, that was stupid of you. But actually, with what you knew at the time, no, much, I, much more reasonable. I think it was an easy decision at the time. And when I look back, I would have made the same decision, you know, because the car was good. We had really good people working at Renault. Um, the, the, like you say, the Honda in 84 didn't look brilliant, and Keki was struggling with it a little bit. Um, and I, I spoke to the three wise men, which was Alan Henry, Nigel Roebuck, and Morris Hamilton. Ha- Hamilton, yeah. Hamilton. Are you going to blame the media? I, I blame them three. They were my <laughs> they were my backroom staff. That that uh, and seriously, I used to sit down with those guys and we used to chew what was going on because in them days you trusted certain journalists more than others, and those guys were always in my camp. So um, yeah, they were part of the decision, if you like. It's one of those things, isn't it? That you know things change. It's a moving target you're shooting for, particularly back then. Today, it's a little bit easier to have reasonable expectation of what a Formula One team's going to do yeah. the next year. But then it's, it's I think if, if I want to be annoyed, I'll be annoyed with someone like LaRousse because he pushed and pushed and pushed for my signature of the British Grand Prix in 84 to sign another year. Um, and I told him I already had Williams. And I, I'd had a conversation with Ferrari, but nothing serious. Um, but um, he really pushed for me to sign. Little did I know that it was him that was leaving the exodus of, of all the great guys that were in the team. Michel Tetu, uh, Mijo, um, all the guys, all the good guys that made a difference um, in the engineering, the aerodynamics of, of the 84 Renault went. You know, and we almost had to start from, um, from zero again. And the, the, the 85 car we took to Brazil in January to test a 10 day test and took the 84 car and the 84 car was three seconds a lap quicker than the 85 car. So, you know, uh, Patrick and I just at the end of the test went and got very, very, very drunk um, and knew we were in for a tough season. No, there's nothing you can do about that really. No, no, nothing. Things change, but but Kev, I mean, you've uh, looked in in depth through, through Derek's career and there were a few occasions where that Grand Prix win, was potentially there for the taking, but for other factors. Well, the two probably most famous ones are Brazil, 1984. So was that first race for Renault, wasn't it? First race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Canada, 89. Yeah. Those are the two that sort of stand yeah, out to you? Canada, 89 really hurt me because that little um, brawn-designed 89 arrows was just fantastic. You know, but it, it never had the money behind it, and it kept on breaking down. If you look at the stats of my, my career, in fact – um, 50% of every race I started, um, I broke down. So, you know, it's difficult to get some momentum going in terms of results. Um, if you have 50% of the time, you've got to remember that in, in our, in, in them days, 
the turbo kept breaking, the rear diff kept breaking, and you had suspension failures. You know, it wasn't like today where these cars are almost bulletproof. You know, if a car stops in a Grand Prix today, you know, everybody's sort of looking, what the hell's going on here? You know, whereas in our day, you'd see them scattered all around the track. I was watching some some uh, Legends uh, uh, um, thing on Sky the other day, and I must have counted about eight cars just abandoned at the side of the track. You know, not crashed, you know, just stopped, you know. I was just going to say, just to, for the detail of that race, obviously, Derek, was, you had everyone, it was in the wet, wasn't it? You always went well in the wet in, in Canada. Canada. Um, and had everyone beaten except Ayrton. And he subsequently had an engine failure, didn't he? I think That's shortly right. after you did. Yeah. And Bootsen ended up winning, but you, you were miles ahead of Miles ahead of Bootsen. Um, and Ayrton came by me just before my car blew. And then as I was walking back, I think his car blew. So, yeah, I mean don't know whether you would have won the race, but um, it, we would have certainly been on the roster, that's for sure. Now, the law of racing drivers is any race that you're in a position to potentially win, you definitely have won if that Okay, happen. That's, okay, that's, all right, yeah. That's, okay. That's well, I definitely would have won that race. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite easy to uh, add up all, all Definitely, of, maybe. <laughs> but, but a great era of Formula 1 to be involved with. You did have uh, some success, I think, you're on the podium four times. You know, good results in sometimes a mediocre or worse machine. I remember that Tolman you started in, um, barely qualified in, in, in the first year, but an amazing period, the turbo era, and then you, 93, last season, you did basically the peak of the technology and the footwork in the second half of the season did get some, the McLaren tech, didn't it? So it was, well, not a cutting edge car. It was, you were sort of getting a taste of that. I I, I think again, you know, I said being, I, I enjoyed every part of being a racing driver. I love driving those cars. You know, they were dangerous for sure. You know, a lot of drivers were um, hurt or killed um, during those 12 years I was in Formula One. But it never, ever put you off because uh, I tried to explain to somebody the other day, um, the 81 Tolman was made out of plastic, basically. I mean, it was just a very dangerous car. But the 82 car was better. So you thought you were at the cutting edge of technology. The 83 car was even better than that. Then you got into carbon fiber. So, you know, you, you, although the cars were dangerous, uh, you never thought of them being dangerous because you were in the latest technology um, of, uh, of, of motor racing. Um, Somebody asked me the other day, um, you know, coming through that era of, of racing and the amount of people that were injured and killed, you know, were you never frightened? And I can honestly say, my hand on my heart, I was never, ever frightened in a race car. You know, even if I had a big crash, you know, the first thing I thought about was getting into the spare car. So, um, you know, Monza I, I, was an well, Monza, Monza being a good example, yeah. But I just, I was never, I was never frightened, you know. And you went from uh, a normal gated gearbox to sequential. Um, to um, seamless almost, um, and then to paddle shift in '93 uh, with the active uh, McLaren suspension. So I was lucky. I came through all that time. I, you know, when I um, drove uh, the Brabham in '86, when I took over from after the accident of um, poor old Elio DeAngelis, um, that was a rocket ship. You know, we had nearly 1,500 horsepower in qualifying. You, you almost physically couldn't change gear quick enough. And from practice to qualifying, we would just take the, tur- uh, the wastegate off and put a, a, a blanking plate on. Um, and we all went up 1,500, 200 revs on every gear because you just didn't know. And you still ran out of revs. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You needed a 15 gear gearbox or something, you know. Um, but they, it was amazing. You know, these engines did. 30 kilometers and they would melt and you'd take it out and throw it in the bin because you, they're just no good anymore. So, so I come through some, some great, um, uh, times in terms of excitement, you know, um, and I wouldn't change a thing, not one thing. 
do you have a preference for the because you went through a couple of different rule sets so did you have a preference for say oh I love the the big powerful turbos but obviously the throttle response would have been presumably terrible Poor. compared to the normally aspirated cars that came in in 88, 89 is there, is there a particular period that you go yeah that was when and I really loved it or do you just you know, take the pluses from whichever no I think it was some good cars you know, you love that era because you're in a good car. 84 was fantastic. 83 was great, actually. The last year with Tolman, you know, the only driver to score points in the last four races. And uh, we really got that car together at the end of um, 83. Um, so I enjoyed that part of it and developing the team from where it was in 81. That was, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a hard, tough job, but a great close-knit team. So, you know, they gave me the, the break in Formula One, um, Alex Hawkridge and Ted Tolman. Um, so 83 was fantastic. Um, I love I love bringing that team help help to bring that team through. Eighty four was great. I mean, it really was. I was I was a more than a professional racing driver. I was a very highly paid professional racing driver um, driving for a manufacturer. So that made a massive difference. Um, of course, I enjoyed the turbo and the the extra power with Brabham. But again, because that car was so bad, um, it was it was it was almost um, masked, and you lost a lot of the enjoyment just because the car was bad, but the engine was great. And then, you know, my, then obviously the thing was Senna. Um, I think somebody said to me, it might be new actually last night, my biggest regret. My biggest re- regret was not being teammate to Senna because, uh, you know, I still had so much confidence in myself. You know, I was still at the, the strength in terms of age, um, the, the right time in my career. Um, and I'd like to put myself against Ayrton, you know, because he's most people's Formula One all-time best drivers and whether or not he'd have beaten me or how much he would have beaten me by I want to know I want to know whether I was any good and and I never did because I was with good drivers but not great drivers you know Patrick Tambay good driver Bruno Giacomelli Eddie Cheever um, Patrese um, Donnelly you know some good drivers but not great drivers, so I, I I will never know really how good I was. And this would have been for '86, wouldn't it? So at the end of the second Renault year, the the chance is for Lotus to join Senna at Lotus, and that's what he that's what he blocked, isn't it? Because yeah. he didn't think that they could run two number one cars. Or at least that was the the argument at the time. What he what he said to me later on was um, he definitely didn't think Lotus could drive uh, could run two number one cars. He was right. He wanted the spare car. And my contract said I had, we'll we alternate the spare car. And he didn't want that. And he didn't want me in the team because he knew how strong a character I was in a British team. No matter how good he was, I would have taken some of that gloss away from Ayrton. And he didn't want to give up any of that. And he also knew that I might have been quite quick. So I think all those factors, he put loads of pressure on the sponsors to go back to Lotus um, and tear up my contract. Because although I'd signed it and we agreed everything, they hadn't signed it. And then when I got called to, um, uh, to um, Norfolk in uh, the end of 85, um, it just tore the contract up in front of me. And do you think that he had more knowledge about you? Because obviously he'd gone to Tolman after you'd left. He'd effectively... Yeah. replaced you hadn't he after yeah. you'd gone to Renault yeah. so he perhaps would have seen what you'd built there and how the well, progress they'd, they'd, they'd have made always, and, and they would have carried on saying you know how good I was in the team and you know not saying that I was better than him but they would have he would have known more about me and my performance um than than most drivers yeah uh, but anyway that, that's history as they say do you think in a, an alternate universe where you were in that car there'd have been a chance to 
show what you could do really because obviously Johnny Dumfries had a tough time alongside Senna and he he was a you know a good driver certainly better than he was able to show in that season obviously you had more I'd experience I'd like to think that I was a stronger driver than Johnny um just because I would have been able to have got more um demand from the team he came in there as an absolute number 2 um he was lucky to get the drive um so he was sort of satisfied with whatever he got he probably was a bit shocked by how good Ayrton was um, and never recovered. I'd like to think that I would have come in as equal as him, um, which would have put him a little bit on the back foot, um, which would have given me a bit of a drive forward. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm judging myself against arguably one of the greatest drivers ever. So, you know, people listening to this podcast will probably think, mm, I don't know, you know, how can you ever think that you'd be as, as good as Ayrton? Well, we racing drivers all think we're pretty good, you know. You know, that's what gets us in, in, uh, in the car. That's what gets us up in the morning to go training. That's what, you know, some of us just, just think we are. You know, I, I don't think I was the greatest, but I think I was a good driver. You know, and I would like the opportunity to see just how good I was. Yeah, yeah. and Derek, Derek would have been better placed for, as well because Dumfries, is, I, funny enough, I was reading about, <laughs> about this recently for another reason, but he was given almost no track time whatsoever. No. I mean, mm. if there was a half a chance that then wanted to jump in the other car, yeah. it'd be like, well, no, you can't no, go out because it needs to, to be. So to his mileage for those days yeah. when there wasn't testing history, it was really low. And he didn't have anything like that. You know, Derek would have come in with you know, several seasons of F1 experience. So it's not like you'd have had the had to get used to the cars and everything else. You'd have just been a much higher level. Whereas I think Dumfries probably yeah. had he, he had no chance really. Yeah, I think I think if you looked into the into the pits, you'd have seen everybody go towards Ayrton when he came into the pits and leaving two mechanics on on um, on Dumfries's car. So yeah, anyway, uh, as they say, you know, I, I um, it's the only re- regret, not because I. He buggered my career up because effectively he did. I mean, don't use the word Ayrton Senna in my house because uh, Rhonda will throw you out of the house because <laughs> she she knows how much it hurt at the time uh, for me to be out of Formula One. Um, I forget those things. And I, I can reflect on it and think, I'm not sure I could have been as strong as Ayrton in that situation, you know, because the British press ripped him to pieces. You know, but no, he didn't care. He sent me a, uh, wishing me a, um, a happy new year and all the best for, for 86. He sent me a card. I've still got it. You know, I, d- I don't honestly don't think he thought he was messing my career up. All he was worried about was uh, securing his. And, and I kind of respect that. That's the ruthlessness of the great driver, isn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah. I, and I'm not sure ultimately I was ruthless enough for that. Hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing from well, a personal know, perspective. No, no, <laughs> shall we say. No, no. I mean, when you look, look back on your career, what, what is the, the high point? Obviously, in terms of the, the success on the CV, 92 stands out among the World Sports Car success with, with Peugeot. But if you could sort of say the point where you enjoyed it most, where you felt you had your best performances, where, where do you look to? Uh, there's one-off races, you know. I remember, uh, I think it was 88 or, or 87 or 88 with arrows come from the, we, had, we had problems in qualifying, back of the grid, and finished seventh. Um, got back to the paddock. <laughs> that that favourite position yeah, of yours. Favourite favorite position. Got back to the paddock and everybody had gone to the plane. You know, I was expecting everybody <laughs> to pat me on the back because it was just an extraordinary race for me. I really drove the wheels off that car. Where, where was that? Uh, Suzuka. Suzuka. 
um, 88 or 89, I can't remember. Um, Suzuka's one of those circuits where you often get what I call stealth very good drives yeah. that, you wouldn't, that you wouldn't notice yeah. just by looking at the results. No, you wouldn't. No, absolutely but not. But there's this consistent record. Yeah. With, yeah, yeah. Formula One's been there of that happening. You see, you know, 84, you know, Brazil, the first race, you know, I mean, it was pretty cool. Imola, 81, when I would, I drove that car out for the first time as a Grand Prix driver, although we didn't qualify, obviously. I was going to yeah. say, when you said Imola, 81, I thought that's it. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might have said Las Vegas, because you did get onto the grid, finally. And I did, yeah, that was 81 as well. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, but that car, we knew it wasn't going to last no more than a, a few laps. I mean, obviously, 82, Brands Hatch passing Peroni. Um, unfortunately, we had a drive shaft break. Is that, is that the truth or not? Yeah, yeah, half shaft. Is that right? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is, that, is that in the fuel tank? Yeah, it's in the fuel tank. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but that was a, a sort of good heroic performance, wasn't yeah, it? it, was, it helped, that must have been nice for you to be able to do It helps your career. You know, it helps your career because people start looking, you know, oh, hang on, this guy can drive, you know. So um, they're, all, they're all big moments, I suppose. Um, like I say, qualifying at Monza with Brabham, you know, with 1,500 horsepower. I mean, it was just, I had a smile the whole way around the track. It was just unbelievable. Didn't finish the lap. It melted at uh, Parabolica. Um, but that's what you had with um, 1,500 horsepower. So um, I suppose the biggest win was, was obviously um, the 24-hour Le Mans. Uh, winning Le Mans with Bergeau, um was, was pretty big because it was, I wanted to pin something on Paul's memory, if you like. Um, and that's the biggest disappointment of me not winning the world championship in, in 91 with Jaguar because I wanted to finish that year after he had his accident with, with something for him. Um, so I had to wait really until Le Mans, until I really sort of put my heart to, to bed, like, you know. So that was, that was big. And winning Le Mans is just, it's just the most amazing race in the world. I mean, I just, I, I, even now at 64, I'd love to go back and do Le Mans. I won't, but I would love to go and do Le Mans just because the camaraderie, the, 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 the way the, the race unfolds. You know, I, I go back to 86 with Jaguar when we did the, on the Saturday morning, you, you, you do the uh, display in front of all the crowd. I cried. You know, I, in, there was so much emotion there. I had tears, you know, and um, they're, they're big moments in your life. They really are. You could be a handy bronze driver at Le Mans these days. <laughs> well, I was offered the um, uh, the Honda NSX GP3 car, GT3 car, at the 24-hour at Spa. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, the, one it, that, is it, that the one that Petrese? Petrese took it in the end. Mm. It was between me and him. We were supposed to go to Italy and test. Um, but then since my illness with the cancer and the chemo, um, I've lost that um, feeling in my hands and I've got hardly any feeling in my feet. So I didn't think I could do a 24-hour race and do it justice. So I didn't want to embarrass myself. You've actually done yourself an injustice on Suzuki 18R. I'm just looking it up. 25th to 6th. So you did get a point. Ah, did someone get disqualified? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, that, and the other, the other, the other one. That, what, what year was that again? 89. 89. And the, the other one that comes to mind is, I think it's on the season, the FIA season review video or something. Because, see, in 89, Berger had his massive shunt at oh, yeah. uh, Tamburello yeah, in the that. Ferrari and yeah. then uh, but he was at Monaco and there's a great moment where he's uh, they're talking he's, he's out at tra- he's out during qualifying uh, 
uh, for, for for the Monaco Grand Prix, and um, and they they interview him, and he just goes, "There's one guy out here, he's really crazy. It's it's Derek, he's amazing." And he did qualify sixth. Right? I know so that must well, have he, been quite a he come in the walls job. He come into the paddock, and he, and he had all burnt hands and everything. He said, "Be careful," but he wanted to shake my hand. He said, "You need to grow up." He said, you were driving fantastic. And it's nice another driver would come and, and, and give you a big compliment yeah, like that. Yeah, you know? to <laughs> no, it doesn't happen very often. No. <laughs> yeah, just to drop back in on Suzuka 89, and was someone disqualified? Oh, ah, there you do, go. If, if you think, do you remember one of the oh, most of course, famous yeah. <laughs> disqualifications in Grand Prix? I was completely <laughs> thinking of something else there. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was your oh, that very, was that very, year, very small yeah. revenge so, on there you Senna. Senna paid you back. There you go. Have a, have a point. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. <laughs> well, I always thought um, one thing that's forgotten is uh, also related to Senna. Everyone remembers Suzuka 93 with Senna and Irvin after the race. But I seem to remember you being punted off by Eddie Irvin in that race. Yeah, I did. When I you was, were on, yeah. on course for yeah, probably for, for, for a... Yeah. What would have been probably your last? But that shows the ruthlessness of, of of Eddie as well. You know, he was he was a you know good strong driver. You know, it, for me that didn't mean anything. To be honest with you, no. I mean, you know, if you want to look at that sort of thing, you know, when I came back after Paul's accident, uh, the first race was Nurburgring um, with Jaguar in '91, and um, and then that whole thing happened with with um, Michael Schumacher, where you know we ended up having a bit of a punch up. So you know. What surprised me, I think, with that was he knew what I was going through that weekend, first race back 10 days after burying my brother. Um, but there's another um, uh, strong, selfish, uh, focus only on himself driver, Michael Schumacher. You know, he, he, uh, he, he will win at all costs. And, and that weekend showed to me that um, he didn't care about anybody else. Well, this actually connects nicely into another topic we wanted to talk about your kind of modern involvement in Formula One as, as a steward. Uh, and in fact, Michael Schumacher, you found him in front of you as a, as a steward at uh, Hungary in 2010, uh, if memory serves, when he squeezed yeah. Rubens into the, not just towards the pit wall, but into the, I think into Rubens did wall. touch the pit he wall. Did, yeah, he did, yeah, he did, yeah. The mark um, and Rubens was very unhappy about that. It was, it was a overstepping the mark and Schumacher did get a, did get a penalty for that. It was uh, the first, almost the first race I did as a driver steward for the FIA. Um, it struck me at the time, and I had a few meetings after after that race uh, with Jean, um, because I was not happy with the quality of stewards in them early days, um, and how people were frightened to go against um, uh, the FIA, um, because with three laps to go, whatever it was, and when he put Barrichello in the wall, I I was screaming at the stewards to to throw the black flag and disqualify him from the race. That's the least we could do for. For, for world motorsport to show other formulas that you can't get away with that sort of driving. Um, but they were frightened too because it might have upset Jean and that sort of stuff, uh, which I was a bit disappointing for me. It's, it's changed now a million percent. If that happened at the next race, you know, we would, we would bring the guy in, um, and take him out of the race. That's for sure. Um, no, I thought that was strong because, and then afterwards, of course, we had him in front of me, um, and him trying to, to, come up with all the excuses that I've tried in my career um, and they, they just did not work and uh, I remember Ross Braun was in there with him trying to defend him but you could see a heartless um, Ross Braun because he was I think pretty disappointed with the way that uh, that Michael drove in that race. It's interesting that talk about the how the stewarding's improved and it, it does kind of tie in with when the driver stewards came in I don't think that's the only reason for it but it, it has been quite a positive thing in Formula One because the stewarding was yeah 
erratic. I and mean, people sometimes do they call for consistency. But I can't remember the last time there was a stewarding call that didn't make sense, at least. Okay, think- occasionally you get matters of opinion on that, but it, it, there has been a big improvement with people like yourself, Tom Christen. There's kind of a pool of yeah. serial driver stewards, should Absolutely. we say, who who take it very seriously, seriously as yeah. well. Yeah. I think the ones who sort of drop I think, in um, have been weeded out. I think out. before the drivers came in, and another great um, uh, initiative from Jean Top, by the way, um, it was his it was his idea. But I I think um, before that, we all thought that the stewards' room was controlled by Balest. Um, Bernie, um, I forget there was another guy in between, I can't remember, um, that it was all a little bit fixed, you know, that you know, they wouldn't give him a penalty, but give him a penalty, especially the whole thing with Prost and Senna and that sort of stuff. But I can honestly say my hand on my heart, when we go into that steward's room, there's four stewards and one engineer, um, the door's locked. You know, uh, Charlie doesn't come in, uh, Bernie didn't come in, and you don't get Ross come in, nobody come in. Jean sometimes will come and watch the first two laps of the start of the race, and then he'll go. You know, so th- it's, now, it's now down to the four stewards. And um, if there's an incident, it kind of falls a little bit on the responsibility of the drivers. If it's technical, although I am quite up with the technical rules and everything, um, those guys know that know their business, you know, and it's it's a pleasure to work with them, actually, because they do know so much. I think even now, some of the, the drivers are stunned by the amount of information we've got. We've got all the data, we've got, the, we've got their brake pressure, their steering input, uh, we've got the top speed, uh, we know, we've got onboard cameras, we've got face, uh, rear-facing cameras, we've got 50 circuit cameras. So we've got so much more information that we could, sometimes too much maybe. Because I always think that when I see an incident, this tells me, my gut tells me right and wrong straight away. And then you can sometimes overanalyze something. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with um, the, the quality of stewards. That um, Are we going to be consistent? No, because, you know, if we ask the three of us on this table about an incident, we will all have a different opinion of it. You know, because maybe in, in your subconscious you like one driver more than the other. I'd like to think I don't. Um, but there's a lot of things that influence other people. And, and people... They see an incident, and of course, it's uh, the penalty's gone to the Hass, for example, because that was quite a common thread over the last few years. Um, and of course, he's going to defend and say they're inconsistent and shout. And really, it does us no good at all, you know. But we don't we don't defend that decision, you know. We 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 put it out there, and then we don't talk about it. I think that's one similarity actually between the, the stewarding and and what we're trying to do. Say, Ed, you with your driver ratings and the journalism is whatever, whoever you like or dislike or whatever. When it comes to that professional decision, you're trying to be as objective as possible. Everyone everyone has those biases. It's about trying to cancel them out. Absolutely, you consciously. Um, But of course, the fans just see it and they go, "Well, you've penalised my driver. I I like, or you haven't penalised." Yeah, it's and then it's much more partisan. Well, I'm very British, as you know. Um, But you know, I would never favour George or Lando. Um, or Lewis, you know, I mean, Monaco, we had an argument last night about um, uh, Nico's uh, qualifying um, antics going into Mirabeau. Of course, you're on the shooting panel for that as well. You picked some good there. races. And, um, you know, in, in, if I had any bias, I would have flicked him because it would, I think it would have put Lewis on pole. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I yes, it would have put um, Nico at the back of the grid yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, so if I'd have had any bias at all, there would have been a good time to have done it. You know, so. That's an interesting case, that one. I mean, I know we don't want to rate too much over the, the details, but I remember 
looking at that. And I think the stewarding decision was correct. That doesn't necessarily mean I don't think that there was intent behind it, okay. should we say, because th- there's always that. But if there was th- intent, then we were wrong. Yeah, but you've got to be, I can think there's intent. You've got to know. That, and, there, and there's a That's big difference That's what I was trying to say there. to yeah. Kevin last night, actually. Um, with hindsight, I think there was intent, um, but we couldn't prove there was intent because the way he pressed the pedal, the way he braked, where he braked, he did brake late. Um, he did get in a bit of a tank slap. Um, but he maybe overused the um, the correction on his steering wheel a little bit. Um, with hindsight now, I might I probably would have flicked him, um, but at the time I thought it was right. You know, and, and it is difficult because these yeah. things have to. Because I think you're, the, the stewards are always told these have to stand up in a court of law absolutely. if you were to absolutely. if you were to challenge them. And yeah. it, it's not yeah. it, you know it, it's not you know balance of probability is it? Yeah. It kind of becomes beyond reasonable doubt, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's and we do have really situations where we're really we don't really know what to do. We looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And half an hour later, I go, well, look, I just want Charlie to just have a quick look at this. So we do bring Charlie in sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes. Um, and I can't remember what we did on that Nico thing. I can't remember. So you know, because Charlie's got, you know, he's got so much experience. You know, um, so he does. He does give us a little bit of a lead now and again, but very rarely. Well, some instances are just difficult to call, aren't they? they are. They're all yeah. genuine 50-50 racing, and you just have to go, well... But they're 50-50, maybe instance, you shouldn't do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which, is, the, which is the answer. The, the other interesting thing is, referring a lot of stewarding editions around, you kind of alluded to it, because I think, if memory serves, you were Spanish Grand Prix last year. I was. With Roman Grosjean's. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he, he got penalised. The, and there's an interesting thing with, when it comes to penalties, you know, that, that was a mistake, by Ro- a, a clear mistake. And how you balance up the kind of the level of mistake with because uh, danger because well exactly because an honest mistake mm. is not necessarily as bad as something that's intentional should we yeah. should we say so that that's a tricky thing how you balance up something, See, I, something I, like I, that. I like that an honest mistake um, and intention they're two different things if he intentionally drove across the uh, the, the ten cars behind him you know he should be banned for life yeah. um, did he make a mistake yes. Do we need to get him to learn from those mistakes? And we've tried many times over the last few years. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, maybe our penalty wasn't quite hard enough for that incident because his analogy when he came in to us was, okay, Derek, you're driving along the motorway, you're on the fast line, uh, fast lane, and you get a puncher. What are you going to do? I said, no, you tell me, Roman. You drive to the inside. Okay, so that's your analogy to that corner you're on the outside and you want to drive across the traffic to get to the inside of the circuit yes yeah that's a, a slightly odd I, I, <laughs> slightly odd I, I know roman didn't like that uh he didn't like that uh that punishment he wasn't very keen on some of the stuff i wrote about it but uh yeah, but he, but, he lit out the re- it was a, it was a decision, conscious or subconscious, to light up the rear tyres. And, and, and I read and it as across. I read it as that there's a point. I mean, Derek would probably be able to give much more analysis. I read it as there's always a point as a driver where you have to know when all is lost. And I felt he went, he was trying to hang on to it beyond it beyond the point where it's possible to, and that got him in. There was a point where he could have just let it spin more, yeah, a more good to the outside. Of that is Simicelli. You know, when when he went down, um, he could have just let that bike go but he didn't he held on to it and came back across the circuit and was hit by um edwards and and, and rossi almost the same situation if he'd have let that go dip the clutch come off the throttle he would stay to the outside there was massive tarmac there um and he would have gone on and, and, and finished the race 
you know, and, and he, what did he do? He put two other cars out. I think he put yeah, Gasly, Gasly Hulkenberg, I think. Yeah. Hulkenberg, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's one of those things, unfortunately, because it all started because, if memory serves, because Magnussen had a bit of a wobble in front of him and that. Yes. So his, his own teammate, so he came off the throttle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back, lost the back, you know. So and you know, to be fair to Roman from the second half of the year, he's driving superbly for the mm, for the most yeah. part. He's a he's a driver when he's when he's right. He's such a good driver. Yeah, it's it's. It's strange that we do see a lot of the same driver. Um, well, well, on the, the flip side of the coin, actually, is interesting. Someone like Lewis Hamilton, who was quite irregular with the stewards at one time, the past few years, I don't, no. I don't think he's been. He's two hung, two he's drivers hungry never 15 had one point last year. Two drivers, one mid grid and one at the front. Lewis Hamilton and Leclerc, hmm. not one penalty point. And you know, and when you're in the mid grid, like Leclerc was, not yep. to get a penalty point, that's pretty good, you know. It just goes to show his stock. Lewis, a bit easier at the front end, you know, it's a bit easier not to get a point up there, I suppose, penalty point, that is. Yeah, I think so. it shows that capacity to, it's sort of processing power, I tend to think it was, the, the, the ability to decide when it's worth making a move or not. Because Lewis, he makes passes, yeah. etc., but his judgment has been very, very it, sound. Yeah. It's kind of a combination of spatial awareness. Yes. So, Fernando Alonso is almost is my example there because he just seems to know where every, everyone is at any given moment. I think they even said that Indy, didn't they? Um, combined with the judgment of of knowing when to go for a gap and when not, and Lewis just seems to have got to that point where he, he he doesn't even have to think about it. He just knows when to like Monza. He just he knew that, that nobody was the else could have won that race no, at Monza. I think that was one of the I, best drivers. I had, drivers I had in that down as the driver of the yeah. driver of the yeah. season because yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah. where a driver has changes the race. Absolutely, yeah, not the car, the driver. But on the reverse of that, there's some of the drivers that their recall and their ability to make the right and wrong decision on when to go and when not to go, they, they keep on making those same mistakes mm. that the front end guys don't. It's not because they're in a better car, because they're still racing with the same uh, level of competition, if you like. Um, it's surprising. It really is. And recall, you know, I've, I've probably seen every driver over the course of the last year, definitely two years. And, and the way that some drivers can recall that incident, because we let them recall it before we show it. I'm sure they've seen it in the motorhome before they come to us. Um, but some people, uh, some drivers can take you through every single inch of the circuit. Um, and some drivers have really no idea what happened. Hmm. You know, and that's a bit of a worry too, because we're talking of the 20th, you know, arguably the, the greatest drivers in, in, in the world today. That's quite interesting, actually, because sometimes after the race, as journalists, we'll get to them sometimes before the stewards, depending on when they're called, etc. Yeah. And sometimes the accounts they give of the, of the incident are, are nowhere near. No, I know. And you sort of say, <laughs> have a look at that. And sometimes the drivers, like next time I see them, say, no, actually, you saw that, you, you were right. Yeah. Sometimes they'll never accept they're, they're it. I've had never... a few times where I've sort of sat down with the laptop of the driver and just say, can you just, I don't quite understand why you don't think you're a fuck. Can you just talk me? Because you try, want to try and understand it. And I think there are some, it's not, that many, but there are some who just refuse to accept culpability, and they they could look at something that's clear as day, and they will tell you all day long they did nothing wrong. Sebastian Vettel yeah. will never admit that he's wrong, and and when we give him a penalty, or we've given him a penalty, um, let me think which one Austria this year we gave him a three grid penalty Outside, for yeah. you know um, we couldn't get rid of him. In the end, we had to say, I'm sorry, Seb, this is not going to change. You've got to go. We, uh, yeah, but hang on, just one more, you know, one more thing. Yeah, but what, just one more thing, you know. And that one was, that one was actually pretty clear because he, I, did, he did say he knew science was there. Yes. And then he said he couldn't see him. Yeah, and he, like, well, he was going three miles an hour, yeah. you know, and oh, anyway. So. It's, it's strange. But it, it is fascinating, stewarding. I think it becomes very easy to criticise stewards. But I think the level of stewarding has been very good. And that whole, 
I always think that you talked about consistency earlier. Consistency is one of those things that it's all very well to say, oh yeah, there should be consistency, but no two incidents are the no. same. Every incident is slightly yeah. different. If you want to the be relative position of cars. Have it in the left hand corner, third gear at the same same uh, same degree of, of grip, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because they're all absolutely different, you know. No, I, th- I think it's um, it's a good system and it's working. I think. Just sort of changing tack a little bit. One of the one of the interesting things about about your career. I mean, you've you've been very involved with young drivers. You've been involved both through the BRDC and also the uh, the McLaren All Sport BRDC Award. You had a very very different way into your career obviously things were very different back then but you basically started off about as far away from formula one as, as you yeah, can get i mean uh, i mean i never had views of being a grand prix driver i'll be honest with you um you know we did a little bit of karting ran out of money um and then my father and uncle uh, was racing formula two stock cars um and then at 15 um i remember i've, I've, I've still got my um my birth certificate i've rubbed the day out and, and penned in another day um, so that I could be 16, you know. So that's how clever we were in them days. And um, built our own car. And um, and I raced from the age of 15 in, in um, um, stock cars or Formula 2 stock cars uh, around quarter mile ovals. So, you know, I, we won the English Championship, European. We won the World Championship. Um, they were great times. You know, you raced against your father and uncle. Um, and, and that's really where I, when I look back, that selfishness of being the person I am was already there because we would go to, I don't know, Wimbledon and um, dad would have a new engine in and I beat him, but his engine was quicker than mine. So we get back, me and my boys would go straight into the garage midnight, jack his engine out, move to <laughs> one side, put my engine in his and I, he'd know about it, but I had no qualms in taking his engine. You know, same with Uncle Stan, you know, I just take his engine. So, you know, and then because they all also knew that I was not a better driver, but more focused, wanted to win, you know, and there were some tough times, you know, because when I was young, uh, we started at the front of the grid, white top, yellow top, blue top, red top, superstars. And um, when I started, obviously, the white top, I led 10 races on the trot and I got put out um, by this same Reading mob, which was... Freebody, May, and Goddard, these three drivers. And last lap, last corner in the fence. Last lap, last corner in the fence. And we were order shot. Tony May caught me, last lap, last corner, put me in the fence. So that's 10 races now. I haven't finished. Could have won, didn't win. So I had enough of this. I backed out. Car was okay. Go down the uh, uh, the, 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 the winning uh, straight. He's now come round, picked up the flag, and then we used to do a lap of honour with a flag. I lined him up uh, as he was coming in the back straight, went straight across the centre reservation, hit him in the side, barrel rolled him over the over the, the safety barrier into the dog track. I was banned for three months uh, for dangerous driving. But that made the difference the rest of my life because the Reading mob never touched me again, you know, <laughs> and I started winning races and then I become world champion. So sometimes it was, a, it was a tough formula. I mean, I was only three foot six, I reckon, when I, when I started. I was a bit of a, a late grower, not that I'm tall now, but um, we would come in. I would cause havoc out there. And Dad and Stan would always say, Whatever you do, boy, stay in the car, visor down, seatbelts on. 
So I'd just come in, sit in my car with the seatbelts on, people would be rolling over my bonnet, punching and, and <laughs> kicking and, and everything. And then it all settled down, there'd be blood everywhere. And I'd look around and somebody would go like that and I'd do a belt and get out and work on the car. Step so, over the bodies as you get <laughs> yeah, back to the end. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a tough old time. But, you know, um, it really taught you how to race. Um, it taught you how to have cars around you all the time. It taught, it taught you how to get the most out of two corners. You know, your entry, your middle corner, your exit, uh, whether you, you know, and, and you could, you could change your line quite a lot. So although it's a bit of a joke, I was an ex stock car driver, which carried me into Formula Four because every time I had anything like an accident, oh, it's a bloody stock car driver, Derek Warwick again. So, you know, it took you a while to take off that, shake off that tag, to be honest. But what and encouraged you to go into Formula Four? What, what was the thing that made you go, right, I'm going to, we're going to try circuit racing now? In my book that we keep talking about, I'm about to write this book, um, there will be, out of the 15 chapters that I think we've got, 14 and a half of them will be about my Uncle Stan. He was just a legend. He really was. He, he flew helicopters. He flew um, aerobatic airplanes. He won the King's Cup air race in, in 73. Um, he wrote off nine brand new Jaguars. Um, I mean, he was just, he was just a nutter. So he was flying out of Thruxton um, in um, 74. And um, he said, oh, boy, you, you want to come to Thruxton? He said, there's things called Formula Fords. You'd re- I mean, they'd look amazing. So we went to the next race, fell in love. I mean, this, this you know, independent suspension, Hewling gearbox. I mean, it was a million miles away from stock car. Went to the racing car that show and bought a car from Hawk. And, um, and that's really what we got. It was my Uncle Stan. It was my Uncle Stan that pushed me all the way through. Because dad didn't want to do it. He wanted his boy to run Warwick trailers um, and do a little bit of racing on the side as fun. Didn't want anything else more than that. So all the way through uh, Formula Ford and even our first year of Formula 3, we had to lie to my father in terms of how much it was going to cost. So me and Stan would sit down and do some budgets and say, this is how much it's going to cost, Dad. Oh, okay. okay, then. you know. And so that's how we kept it going because dad really didn't want me to to race and it wasn't really until my second year of Formula 3 that I felt that I was a racing driver you know because then Formula 1 was not in my sights but achievable I suppose you know and and then we almost signed for that BS Fabrications um, McLaren Um, I nearly did a one-off race for them because I won the first five races in um, in 78 um, against Nelson Piquet and Chico and Duchesne and all those guys. Um, but that's when I made the mistake. I then, I then brought the march because uh, the march looked like it was the best thing out there because Chico was getting pole everywhere. And Robin Hood gave me, um, gave me um, 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 uh, a march, but it was too complicated. Lost momentum. Piquet got the momentum. Um, and ended up winning the BP championship, which left me winning the Vanderbilt. So, it, again, it's decisions you make in life. You know that, that had I kept with my route, I think I would have won both championships, and I re- may have got a Formula One drive a lot quicker than I ended up getting it. Because he ended up at then Brabham, didn't he? he? Did. Not not long he did. afterwards. He mm. did. did you learn something in terms of racecraft from doing the the short oval stuff? Hundred percent. I don't get to see this type of racing that often but when I do I'm always amazed by when you get the the big name drivers starting at the back yeah. and it's just inconceivable they can fight there's just no space yeah. how they get through from the back to win yeah. without 
without shunting. It's just absolutely well, astonishing. And I think I saw that in my second year of Formula Four. I did 63 races in, um, um, in 76 um, and won 33 of them. Um, and I had one shunt all year. So that, you know, and, and that was when you had grids of 26, 30 cars with 15 going into Woodcote on the last lap at Silverstone. Um, that's when you learn how to race. And that's where I think five years of, of, of uh, superstock racing um, came to the front. I was a great racer in those early days when you had to actually race the other car rather than have the su- superiority of one car versus another. Did you find it easier to psych yourself up for a race as opposed to a qualifying session? Um, or did you just treat it as two different? Because some drivers, just the, the, their best comes to fore in a race as opposed to you know, qualifying. I'd probably be more focused for qualifying um, because you all knew how important it was to be at the front. So you were always a little bit more edgy, a little bit more nervous, a bit more excited for qualifying. Whereas the race, I knew I could do a good job. So, you know, I, I wasn't a nervous driver. Um, I had certain routines I was quite, quite superstitious that I would keep to. Um, but no, I think, I think qualifying, we all know that it's so important nowadays, well, nowadays, but even in them days, um, to be at the front end. Looking a little bit more at, uh, at your current life in motorsport, why have you done so much since you finished driving? You know, some drivers hang around and give back to the sport, some disappear, some kind of dip in and out, but it seems to have been a kind of important part of your life all the things you've done since why is that is it a conscious desire to put to put something back or is it just the world you know why do you think you're so active i think there's two parts of that i think because i think i've always been a businessman you know i've always been into property and obviously always been into cars so i built up a, a small group of garages and we had six seven garages at one stage and sold everything in 03 and, and it really gave me a massive boost because I just ticked every box in terms of the right time to, to sell all the freeholds um, back to Honda, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I was doing loads of developing. Um, I employ 120 people over here now. I've got four sites on the go on the south coast. Um, I've got the garage in, in Jersey where my head office is, obviously. Um, and although I had an involvement with Triple Eight down in Australia, that I, we've decided to cut that off now because – Roland's doing such a great job down there. Um, I, I just want to be busy. You know, I, I, there's, no, there's no retirement in me at all. You know, and then 11, 10, 11 years ago, um, they offered, they, they wanted me to get on the board of the BIDC. Um, and then I realized how much I enjoyed working with young drivers. Um, so it was all a gradual progression. I didn't go to the BIDC and think, right, I want to help young drivers. It was, you know, because... Uh, Damon was trying to get superstars going and uh, was fitting in and out a little bit. And I could see that we could make a difference there. Um, so, you know, from there I went to president, as you well know. Um, I sort of, I never, ever saw myself as president. You know, following people like Jackie Stewart and Damon Hill, I've got huge, huge respect for. Um, to be able to try and follow those guys put me under a lot of pressure i didn't like it i didn't like having to do all the the public speaking and all the um all the stuff that goes with being president um i i enjoyed being on the board and working on the board and understanding um what goes into running a, a big company like silverstone i really enjoyed that um and then then gradually i'm i'm 
too quick at saying yes rather than no. And next thing you know, as I was on the club committee and then um, I inherited the rising stars and then I got involved in the superstars and then MABA. Um, and, um, and then I become chairman of, of, of MABA. But I have to say, I really get a massive, massive kick and satisfaction out of all the young driver programs that the BRDC run. Uh, the one thing that stuck is I've been fortunate enough to be obviously on the McLaren or sort of BRDC award panel with with Derek, and it's the it's the, you're all in, aren't you? you know, yeah. If you do something, it's absolutely 100 percent throw yourself into it, and the commitment has been remarkable Massive. and really pulled pulled us all along. I think in that, um, and that that I imagine that's probably how you sort of lead a team when you're racing as well. It's a similar kind of energy in getting everyone pulling in the same direction, um, but it's also the personal time you put into it. The um, the, the, all the young drivers, whether they win the award or not, can give you a call any time. Yeah. And, and do. I think, uh, yeah, and, and do. And, and should do. Yeah. You've been able to help them. And I think that that's kind of perhaps un, been underplayed. I mean, not that you do it for to get accolades and stuff. But no. it, it, I think it's made... I mean, Ollie Rowland in particular is... Well, he, you know, he, he came to my home. You know, I took him to Switzerland um, training, you know, and um, I beat him up. You know, I, I had to beat Roland up because, you know, he was a, he was a pretty uh, difficult character. Um, and I just knew that there was such a, a talent there that I wanted to um, to bring the next British um, uh, Grand Prix driver. Not because uh, of any financial benefit, because I never had any financial deal with any of the drivers. I just want to help them, you know, and I, I get a big kick. And you're right, when you say all in... Sometimes too much, you know, I, I, I try very hard to sit back a little bit sometimes because I know I take over. I know I talk too much. Um, um, and, and I know all that. I don't think it's particularly a bad thing. Um, but I do take over. It's, it's, I'm the same in my business, mate. You know, I mean, I just can't leave it alone. I think, you know, and I'm also a very organized, tending to be a bit OCD in everything that we do. I will get back home um, tonight and I will open the fridge and I will make sure the cheese and the butter are together. I will make sure the <laughs> oh, milk down God. the bottom. Uh, <laughs> just little things like that, you know. Just uh, It's not obsessive. Um, if you come to my garage, everything's reversed in. If a customer comes on site, um, I take the keys off of him, me sometimes, but anyone, um, and reverse it in for him so that when they come and pick it up, they drive it straight out. You know, lots of little things, attention to details that, that, that make a successful business, but also makes the employees, um, do anything I ask them because I empty the bins. Um, once a week, um, because I go up and clean the windows and because I put the Christmas decorations up and because I put the new door out the back workshop and welded the beams in the top, um, I can ask any one of my guys to empty the bins. And they don't go, oh, hang on, that's not my job description, because they saw me do it the day before. You know, so, um, and that's how I run all my businesses. You know, I, I, I'm very close to everybody. To put you on the spot, Kev, having worked with Derek on something like McLaren All Sport BRDC Award, why do you think Derek is so good with young drivers? Some of it's been touched on there, but there are plenty of uh, older drivers, should we say, who some aren't interested in helping. Some try to help, but are counterproductive because it's all kind of, oh, you should be doing that. I did this. I did that. I can't, so- I can't think who you're talking about now. <laughs> but but there's a <laughs> there's a mindset, isn't there? What In order for, a, for someone of Derek's age to be able to communicate effectively with with you know teenagers that that's 
that's a big gap to, to be able to bridge. Well, I think they're, they're you put, put me on the spot. Derek's here in the room. It's, uh, but yeah, I love doing this on I podcasts. I think there were two, two, two or three things. One, I think it, the, a genuine desire to help, which is very clear. You know, um, there's there's no ulterior motive, isn't there? You know, it's, it's just a wanting to help any British drivers that 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 can be helped. You know, it's not just the, the, the award winners; it's any of the finalists and everything. So I think there's the genuine there. I think also that Derek speaks as a racing driver to racing drivers, and that's the language in itself. You don't, it doesn't really matter about age in that respect, or when you've done the driving. You talk about you know, commitment and oversteer, understeer and talking about getting a car around the track, that's the same whether you're 16, 66, whatever. Um, so I think that's that's a big key. And the, the final element is that Derek's been there, done that, seen so many people, know so many people within the sport that he can help put people in touch with others. You know, if you're a 16-year-old driver, it's quite a big thing to go up to, you know, a, a Ron Dennis or a Christian Horn or whoever it might be and say, right, I, you know, hello, I'm me. But Derek can help that by opening doors. And we've, we've, we've seen that. We've seen that a few times just to give, he won't go out and do it just without any push at all because the drivers have got to be part of that process. And I think George Russell was actually very good at going and doing that himself. So some drivers need more help than others. But, you know, we've, we've seen it in, in the awards before. We've had issues with certain cars to get them there. It's always quite difficult to get the cars together. And Derek can ring up somebody yeah. that he knew from either through the F1 studying or his career or whatever and go, you know, what's happening here? And can we sort something out? So he's, he's con- contacts and a desire, I think, make it quite a powerful combination. Yeah, and you know, it, and I get satisfaction out of that. You know, people like George. You know, he is very upfront, but he will ring me to ask me how upfront he should be, or or, or some of the drivers will. Um, I try to get through to the drivers, and this has always been a, um, I think, a failing of mine, uh, which is which is wrong to assume because I think as a driver, you're almost uh, embarrassed or or um, frightened to go and knock on the door. You know, and, and but people inside the door, Williams, people like that, they want you to knock on the door. So I'm trying to tell people that, you know, don't be frightened to go up to David Coulthard out in the show now and say, hi, um, you know, I'm Tom Gamble. I've just won the McLaren Ops Water BRDC Young Driver of the Year. And straight away, I know David Coulthard will engage, you know, whereas a lot of people won't because they're almost um, too shy to go up to them. So I, I try to get that out of a lot of them as well. There's also the other side where you you're a pain in the ass. So therefore, you know, you, you're too upfront, you know, and I could mention a few drivers there. So, um, yeah, I, I just think, uh, last year was a, a big year with Dan Tictum, um, because, uh, he had a lot of issues. Um, he didn't know what to do, especially with the point situation. So I spent a lot of time with the FIA, with the drivers commission, uh, world council, um, circuits commission, MSA, as it was then trying to get more and more points for him so that he could, first of all, do the test in Budapest um, and then maybe get um, the drive at Toro Rosso because I still think he would have been a better option um, than the one they picked. It, you know? the, the license points thing, by and large, has been very positive, but that's that's the one case where yeah. there's a driver who very clearly should be able to, to get a super license. Well, he's, dri- he's driving this, wing at, this weekend in Singapore. He's doing the Asian ser- series, mm-hmm. which is um, seven points over four races, I think. Or four weekends, so that will give him the forty points because he's got thirty-five now. Yeah, but, but the point being, you know, those sort of guys, I enjoy helping because you, you can see some genuine desire, talent, um, and and want to win there. You know, 
No, not all of them, but most of them. Well, you get excited. Well, I think we all yeah. do. When yeah, we do. At the assessment days, you, I think some people think that we're looking to catch them out or trip yeah. people. It's not, we just want to see who, who's mega. Well, well <laughs> part, get part of my, part my opening you. speech is, we are not policemen. You know, we're here to help you guys at every stage. And we do. All the way through, we go up to them and... What's your problem? Have you got any issues? You know, you're a couple of tenths off. You just need to pick up a bit of speed here, there, there. So we help them through it, although we don't give them times. Um, I just think it's a good competition, Kevin, don't you? I think it's really good competition. I, I, I love, love being involved. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we've, been, we've also been very fortunate the last, oh, the last four or five we've years. We've spoiled. I mean, to get, we have. You, know, you can't expect to find a Grand Prix drive, British Grand Prix driver every year. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. But we've had, you know, George Russell look. We were pretty confident with, and you know he's got there. Lando's got there quicker, yeah. Um, and and Dan should get there, and and they're they're all exciting talents that we want to see. Oliver should have got there. Yeah, Oliver had the raw ability, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did have raw. Yeah. And Williamson, I actually thought um, uh, Lewis Williamson was, was very very good, but I think he's doing sports cars GT. I don't. Really yeah, yeah, Chris yeah, still he's a bit yeah. of simulator work for Red yeah. Bull, didn't he? So yeah, yeah. I mean, m- most of them have gone on to have. Most of the winners, have, if, if, even if they've not got to F1, they've. You know, mm. I think I was t- I was telling out the other day because obviously we've now you know, announced that McLaren are no longer involved, so we've been going over the thirty years, and it's something like six hundred and forty nine F1 yeah. starts, mm. um, twenty eight wins, um, lots of class wins at Le Mans, three Indy five hundred thanks to Dario, IndyCar Championship, mm. DTA. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a whole load. Not bad, is it? It's not. It's not. I know we're sort of patting ourselves in the back, but yeah. but by and large, they've been they've been good winners, and I think part of that is because of the process. Mm. Um, it is kind of right, slate clean, off you go. Well, Lando will say um, he wouldn't have got the McLaren drive or the testing gig had he not won that award and ended up going there and driving the simulator. And they realised just how bloody good he was. Um, and then he, then it's up to the driver, of course. You know, the driver then has to develop that relationship. You know, we can't hold his hand through the whole thing. Um, but and, and some people are very good. And Lando was was brilliant at it. I mean, he, he really he really got himself. In, into that team um, himself with his own ability, you know. Yeah. And it's a it's a big year in that regard because you've got George Russell with Williams. He won it in 2014. Then Lando Norris, he won it in 2016 with McLaren. So you've got two drivers both graduating to, to so, Formula uh, One this year. What, Al- what you- Alexander Albon also came through our system. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Didn't win it. He, would, he was a strong second, actually. Well, actually, um, if you look at the finalists over, yeah. the, over the years, yeah. it's basically a who's who of British drivers. Yes, it, it is. It? Yeah. But, I mean, we are quite lucky because we do pick the top four was top six British drivers. So we do we do stand half a chance because they are the best British drivers well, around. It's been quite good the last years that they've spread themselves out. So yeah. that George, Lando and Dan didn't have to go up against each other any year. Because yeah. there was one year, 2011, I think, we had Roland, Lynn and Blomqvist yes. all at the same time. I think, yeah. crikey, only one of them yes. can win. And at one stage, they were, yeah, I think, yeah. within about a tenth in yeah, the F2. Kind of, oh, yeah, my, oh, my God, how yeah. are we going yeah. to sort this out? But um, what do you think we'll see from George Russell and Lando Norris in Formula 1 this year? I mean, setting aside the fact we don't know how competitive the cars will be, I think we can make a reasonable guess. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to be at the front, certainly. What, what should we expect from those, those two? And they're quite different. Yeah. Sort of characters, aren't they? As well, I think, I think um, George will probably come out on top just because um, he's in a different situation with a different environment. Um, I worry for Lando that he doesn't get caught up in that big corporate McLaren machine, um, which I can already see it happening a little bit. I'm afraid. Um, I'd like to try and uh, advise him to sort of be his own person, but uh, that McLaren, that McLaren thing is. Um, it's a bit of a difficult. They've, they've, they've created a this this great big management system um, that that I don't think is completely right. So that might swallow um, Lando up a little bit. Um, 
Alexander Albon, I think, um, I think that could be good for him. I, he sort of flies under the radar a little bit for me. Um, but if you look at all the pictures when you see, um, I don't know, uh, Lando and George and um, even Verstappen, there's a little Albon there somewhere. Mm. He's always on the rostrum. So he's had a stellar career. Um, as we know, he was a Red Bull driver. So I think I think he'll do a good job because he's in a very open environment. And George will. George will do a brilliant job. I, I'm looking forward to how quick George is going to be against Kubica. Uh, no, I agree completely. I'm, I'm quite. I'm, I'm fairly confident that George is is going to be okay because I think that he probably will beat Kubica. Um, uh, and it, and in any case, he's got that McLaren, the Mercedes link. So as long as he does a good job at Williams, it almost doesn't matter how bad the car is. Obviously, we hope that it's up the grid. But I think, yeah. George, I, I agree with about, about Lando. And I think he's got a tougher gig in terms of his teammate as well because I think a lot of people perhaps don't rate science, but I don't think he's going to be easy to beat. So he's a, he's a very it, he's a very decent it, it, you you know he's not a driver who you'll beat by default. Yeah, right? if you expect to, Lando to go in and just blow his yeah. doors off, then then he then I think they. I gonna... don't think it'd be twenty one zero. Oh no no no, no And I think uh, I think it would be at least fifty fifty, if not in Lando's favour against Sainz. So but now see possible. what I'm saying is if he doesn't match that, yeah. then we'll think oh yeah. well, that was a disappointing yeah, yeah. rookie season. Yeah, yeah. But it wouldn't necessarily be. Yeah. And Albon, that's almost completely down to which Kvyat turns up, isn't it? Yes, because if it's the Kvyat that Red Bulls have seen somewhere and keep bringing him back for, then he'll be quite tough to beat. But if he has a you know whatever he well, <laughs> whatever I hope, loose, it's, I hope loose. it's the Kvyat that we think has got that speed that we've seen in his earlier career. But you know, lucky son of a bitch, you know, to to get three <laughs> chances at Formula One, you know, I, if I was him, I would be training really hard at this moment and really put the nineteen together. It's almost the. I think it's almost the, the character. Has he has he been able to get his head around those two knockbacks? No, I think Ferrari so, being to, uh, being their yeah. simulator driver. I think that's maybe uh, matured him a little bit. You know, he's, he's he's been in a different camp. He's had the disappointment. He's come back out of the disappointment. So you know, if I was him, I would just see all those as pluses um, and put it all together for this year. You know, don't I, think of them as negatives. I suspect with Kvyat. It'll be one of those things that it could stand or fall on how it starts in yeah. the season. If, if he has a couple of iffy ones and albums ahead of him, he so, might he might get into a bit of a downward spiral. And then because it's the same environment where things went wrong before, that accelerates it. But you know, I, I do I think, think Kvyat's, I do think of a he's a very quick driver. Yeah. I, I think he's got real ability. So I'd hope it is. The this is racing. Driver. I hope he, ha- I hope he, I hope he can race better than he did this last few years mm. because he did get involved in an awful lot of accidents. Yeah. Um, and then whether that was, um, Red Bull pressure, I don't know, or whether that's him not having the, um, the, this 360 awareness that we talk about that, that Lewis has got and Alonso's got and all those guys are in, in Vettel's got. Um, I'm not sure he's got that 360 awareness. I really don't. I think he's one of those drivers. When he, um, I think off the top of my head that the points, rate when he and Sainz were together at Toro Rosso was something like 90 against 8 in terms of the points scored and Kvyat always seemed to just struggle so there was always sort of one yeah. weakness and often it was that but you sort of looked at him and you said well you're not you're not struggling really with pace and you've been pretty good but you've just ended up on the wrong side of one decision yeah. somewhere so yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting but I'm interested to see Lando Norris the the reason being obviously we all saw how Stoffel van Dorn struggled against Fernando Alonso no he hasn't Lando doesn't have to take on Fernando Alonso but one of the interesting things was the FP1 sessions that Lando did, you could see that Lando was better able 
to drive around the limitations of the car than yeah. Van Dorn was. Yeah. He could, because Alonso really hustled the car. He didn't, you know, the rear was quite weak. He could, Alonso could chuck it in and sort it out. Um, Stoffel seemed just to become quite fearful of doing that. Whereas Lando, you could see, had a willingness to do that. So that suggests there's not, he's not going to be overawed by it. Certainly. It's very positive that he's got that, yeah. that kind of skill set. So. He was impressive. You know, George, George and Lando were two of the most impressive drivers we've ever seen come through Mabba by, by far. You know, they, they really were. So they are exactly where we'd hope they'd be <laughs> in Formula One. No, exactly. It's, well, it's good also that uh, thanks to the efforts of individuals like yourself that Britain's still producing yeah, but these you know, drivers. I, it's, it's funny. I, I, last year was a great year for me because I got the Gregor Grant Award, um, the Autosport Awards, and then I also got a gold medal um, at um, the BIDC Awards um, for my efforts in, in motor racing, but also um, for young drivers. But it's, and, and I missed the point, really, because it, it's not about me, actually. I'm just the face of it. These guys work just as hard behind the scenes. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a big group of people um, that makes MABA work and superstars work and the BIDC, et cetera. I'm just at the face of it. And, and, and I, I remember at the end of the BIDC Awards, I was angry with myself that I didn't stand up there um, and give that thanks back to the, the guys that also do all the work because it is a team effort. And we all put a lot of work into it. I might put a little bit more because I am the chairman, so it drives from me. Um, but we all put a lot of effort into it, don't we? We all give a lot of our free time up for it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, actually. The, the, the panel's been fairly consistent yeah. over the last few years, and it, God, we all know how each other works, and we all know what bits we're doing. And, yeah. But I don't think any of us would ever think, oh, God, Derek's getting the credit again, because we, no. we, we're happy for, to be led by you, if that that's makes sense. That's not what sense. you said that's... before, Derek turned <laughs> 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 uh, But no, it's, it's, uh, yes, it's a great process to be involved yeah, in, and it's yeah. almost a shame we can't open it up to, 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 to more people to come and, and yeah. watch it, just because from a, few, a pure fan perspective, you, you, you know, one of the things you always debate, whether you're a fan or a journalist, is you know, who's doing a good job in, in the various teams and championships, and it's quite quite complicated you've often, often only got the teammate to compare against even yeah. then there can be other factors going on whereas with this it's yeah. it's it, you know you'd love to we'd love to put i'd love to put the f1 grid yeah. out in yeah. in those three cars and go right who's going to yeah. be quickest now oh, that'd just be absolutely. fantastically entertaining yeah. yeah yeah i always remember when i was basically just starting with autosport and uh i went to a couple of the the mclaren autosport evaluations and obviously sort of coming in from the outside and you see just how a how interesting it is, and b how how even it is. And this was years ago, so when people like Alex Lloyd were 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 winning it, and even back then, and I think it's evolved a lot since then. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the, e- even then, you could see how how sort of scrupulous and fair and serious the, the whole thing was, and it's it's probably ten times more but, effective now it, it, than it, it is, was then. It is ten times more now. Oh, yeah. I mean, having the F two cars, the MSV, should say MSV mm. F two cars. Um, it, it, on track at the same time just makes it so much easier because A, you know they haven't driven the cars and B, it doesn't matter what the conditions are doing, they're out at the same time so you don't have to factor in track evolution or wet drive, whatever. You're just out at the same time. Instant data, we know the sectors, we go around the circuit and we've got it instant Uh, on our phones. It's just brilliant. I've recently spoken to two-thirds of the winners for Peace Online and in the magazine. One of the things that came out of that from the early winners that have then come back as judges, people like um, Paul DeResta, Darren Turner, uh, Anthony Davidson, Alexander Sims, those guys said how much better prepared the guys are yes. now. Yeah. They they are right. There used to be quite, because I started going to the award test just slightly after you're saying it, probably about 2006, seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say there was a bigger range, bigger gap from front to back then than there is now. You know, the, 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 the fourth yeah. driver of the four we've got now is still 
really actually pretty close to the yeah, front. Pretty good. They all come in and you think, yeah. yeah, there's no there's no one you think, oh God, why the hell did we pick him? Yeah. You know, that, that doesn't happen anymore. No, I think they're all that no. much more professional and ready at an earlier age. And I think because we had such a good run with such great drivers that I was a little bit underwhelmed before this year uh, with the four drivers that we had for this year. I was not, not my socks off again. We, there were four good drivers. Whether they're going to be great drivers, I'm not sure. Um, but great competition. Um, and Tom Gamble was just extraordinary. I mean, it really took our wind out. Yeah. I mean, and also, you, you, one of the things I like about it is picking out a particular session that you think, oh, that, crikey, that was good. I mean, Tictums was the, the slick stamp. Yeah. Yeah. You know, damper drawing was. I mean, he was like under, two, three seconds, seconds quicker than everybody. Road. I mean, it was phenomenal. And just standing at Stowe, with yeah. his, you think he's going off every lap, and he just—it <laughs> was just amazing. But, but, but last year with with Tom, it was the LMP3 Legio. Yeah, it was a car that replaced the DTM Mercedes, so we weren't. You know, it's always good to have the DTM car. It's a highlight for a lot of people. So losing it was a bit of a blow. Yeah, but the Legio was quick, sounded amazing, and it tested the guys. Um, and it was because of the it was on different tyres and all. It was really nervous, and for Tom to go out and and hang it on the line like that with very few laps and outpace Alexander Sims, who's doing a bench almost on, bench, his, fir- on his first lap, almost yeah, uh, was you know, and he was well down the road from everyone else, and that 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 kind of that will stay that will stay with me. For, yeah, from, I agree. From I was stood with Alexander, and all he went was what? <laughs> he looked at the time as he crossed the start finish line, and he said what? It's he quite was, funny because Sims did that yeah. to. Gary Paffitt when he did the DTM run yeah, he was yeah, a so he's, yeah. been having, he's yeah. had it done back to him now <laughs> no it's a, it's a fantastic scheme and uh, and long may it uh, continue well I think we've probably talked long enough we could keep going for another 20 hours probably with us, <laughs> yeah. uh, but hopefully we've given people a bit of a feel for what Derek Warwick's about as a, yeah. as a driver and as Thank a you. And as a, I'm not sure, a young driver mentor for one of a, yeah. <laughs> one of a better phrase. So thanks very much for your, for your My time. My pleasure. And, and you're not bad, even though you're affiliated with Jersey. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I enjoyed also, it. Kevin Turner for only occasionally hitting the table, which is the <laughs> main offence on podcast. Yeah, and I didn't just talk at Derek as well, which is quite good. Which I think last <laughs> night after a couple of beers, I probably did do quite a lot of talking at people. Yeah, so. you, you can yeah, get like that. You, you were that. at me <laughs> yeah, for most Sorry of the night, that. actually. I apologise. <laughs> no, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> thanks very much. Head to autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula 1 and the whole motorsport world. Check out our Plus subscriber area where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists on all sorts of categories. Check out Autosport Magazine out every Thursday and also please check out sister titles, Motorsport News out weekly, F1 Racing Magazine and motorsport.com. If you fancy a flutter download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to look and feel better together? Team up and lose weight with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. Partners lose more weight doing it together, up to 20% more weight than doing it on their own. Get fully prepared breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks delivered right to your door. Delicious foods that are ready in minutes. Now featuring new Meals for Two. Double portion meals served up in one package and designed for weight loss. Quick to prepare and ready to share. Get Nutrisystem's Partner Plan and lose weight together. Now with hearty inspirations dinners that control hunger for up to five hours. Exactly what you both need to feel full, satisfied, and energized as the weight comes off. Stop wasting money on diets that don't work and lose weight with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. Get started for as low as $10 a day. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash meals right now and get a deal for two. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash meals. Expect to lose an average one to two pounds a week. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.